Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. For those of you who don't know me that we haven't met, my name is Tom Butler. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to continue this morning in uh, the study of the gospel according to Mark. Uh, Last week, Parker gave us uh, a feast. I felt like I was drinking out of a fire hydrant all of the things that he shared with us and laying the foundation for the rest of the study. And I want to keep that in front of us this morning as we think about the rest of the study of the the book. Mark's purpose uh, was one of the things that uh, Parker shared with us. And Mark's purpose was to help us to know Jesus to show us who Jesus is, and to invite us to follow him. And then the book structure, it breaks down into three different sections. And the first section is going to tell us who Jesus is. That's what we're going to talk about today. The second section is what does it mean to be the Messiah, and then how Jesus becomes the Messiah. So this morning, uh, what we want to look at in chapter 2 is is a text that some of you may be very familiar with. And when we first started studying this, I thought, you know, I, I know this well. This is the one where the, the paralytic guy gets lowered through the ceiling. And yeah, I got it. That's easy. That'll be a piece of cake. What you need to know, and I'm sharing this with you because you're the launch team, right? It's just us. Is that the, the teaching team actually does work together in our study Our desire is to be accurate in teaching God's word. So no one of us goes into a closet and studies what we think, but we as a team go through it. And much of what we're going to be looking at today is a result of that collaborative study that has blessed my soul, and I hope that it does the same for you. Uh, So with that being said, what we're going to do today is uh, give an overview of the, the, the miracles that happened before our text here in chapter 2, and then we're going to look at the miracles that happened after. And the reason is, is that the text that we're going to look at isn't just another in a series, okay? The text that we're going to look at was a pivot point. It was a change from what was happening before it and what happened after that. And that's, that, to me, is what's really exciting about the text today is it really is a significant text in the middle of this. Um, It's a turning point. Um, So we're going to take a a look at that broader picture. Now, as we do that, we know that in Mark chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along with me. It's going to be a bit of a quick run through some of this stuff. We're we're not going to develop it. But in chapter 1 of verse 14, it says, After John was arrested... Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is where the handoff kind of took place. We know that Jesus had come, he'd been baptized by John, and then immediately he went into the wilderness. Because the time wasn't fulfilled, it wasn't time yet. John was still doing his work. John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare the way of the one that was going to come after him. John still had a little bit of work to do. And then when John was arrested and taken out of the picture, 
it was time for Jesus to come on the scene and to start his earthly ministry. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a car guy, and I couldn't help but read this and think, it's kind of like when I go to a NASCAR race and everybody's filling up the stands in eager anticipation of what's going to happen, and all of a sudden the pace car comes out, and the pace car goes around and goes around, and we know that the race is about to start, and then all of the cars fall in behind the pace car, gets everything ready, and then the pace car goes off the track and the race starts. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in, in this passage is that John is being taken away from the scene and Jesus is starting his ministry here. And I think it's interesting that as Jesus starts his ministry, uh, we'll see in the first four how he was trying to keep it under wraps and, and that wasn't working out too well because it was so amazing that people couldn't help themselves and so as you think about the miracles that happened before chapter 2, uh, we start in, um, in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, And then he went to Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. This is Jesus. And they were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. And just then a man with an unclean spirit uh, was in the synagogue, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, told him to be silent and come out of him, and the unclean spirit came out of him. This, this was the first one here. And it's interesting that the, the, the evil spirit knew who he was, and Jesus told him, Be quiet. It's not time yet. And he threw him out. But People were amazed because as he was talking, they were used to hearing the scribes teach about the law and the prophets and how that they would refer back to it and they would teach from it, but they didn't teach as one with authority. And I think it's interesting that from the very beginning, that was one of the observations that they picked up on is this guy is teaching differently than the scribes. He teaches as one with authority. And then we go down to uh, chapter 1 and verse 29. This is when Jesus goes to Peter's house. And as he enters the house in verse 29, as soon as he left the synagogue, he went to Simon and Andrew's house with James and John, and Simon's mother-in-law <clears throat> was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. You know, we read that, and we think, well, that's, yeah, I've, I've read that before. Again, what we want to do is step back and not project 2022 life on what's happening here. This lady was in bed with a fever in the first century, which meant they didn't really know what was going on. They didn't know if she was going to get over it. They didn't know she, we, they didn't have urgent care to go to. They didn't have help. And so it seems kind of routine that he just went in and touched her and she was healed and she started serving it, but it wasn't. It was a miraculous event that happened, and Jesus healed her. So we keep going down to verse 32, and it says, And when evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all who were possessed and were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick and of various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And so he continued to do healings. He continued to drive demons out, do all of those things. He continued to try to keep it under wraps. 
He didn't want to get any more fame than he was going to get. And then the last one, and, and this is an important one, in verse 39. Verse 39, he talks about the, the leper. And he went to Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him on his knees and begged him, If you are willing, can you make me clean? Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And he told him to go away and not tell anybody. Cliff notes is he couldn't help himself. So at this point, we've gone through these number of miracles. He's gotten some attention. People are intrigued by him. They're fascinated by him. And, and crowds of people are coming to see what's going on. This is different because there were other people doing miracles and doing different things. Sorcerers and the magi and, and all, magicians and all of these things were going on. And so in the beginning, people probably thought, oh, it's just another one of those. But over a course of time, the more that happened, the crowds grew and grew and grew. And they were starting to really wonder, what is it about this guy that's different and so that's why it came to the point where he had to, and this is the thing that really struck me, he had to sneak around at night, and he had to hide from people. And um, it says in verse 45 of chapter 1, yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely. This is, is the uh, leper. And, and res the result was that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but that he was out in desert places and they came to him from wherever, from everywhere. Is that the picture you have of Jesus? Sneaking around at night, trying not to be seen? And yet that, that, that was a place that he had found himself. And then that brings us to our text, which is in chapter 2, where it says that there were rumors that he was in town, that he was in this house, so everybody crushed in to see him. Now, what happens in chapter 2 is pivotal, and we see that by what happens after chapter 2. So if we go to chapter 2 in uh, verse 15, by the way, thank you, Parker, for letting me use your Bible. Chapter 2 in verse 15, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he, who saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked Jesus, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is when they first started questioning him. So they had gone from being amazed, curious about what was going on to now they've started questioning him and trying to figure it out and being a little more aggressive. Then we go over to verse 18 in chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and Pharisees' uh, disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast? And they start questioning him even more. Then we get down to verse 23 of chapter 2. It says, On the Sabbath day he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. And the Pharisees 
said to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Again, they're getting a little more aggressive in their questioning, and they, they really want to know what's going on. And then we get to the one that really caused the problem. In chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with a shriveled hand, Stand before us. Then he said to them, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Do you see how this escalated quickly from a curiosity and an amazement and trying to understand to seeing him as a threat that had to be eliminated? And the text that we're going to look at today in chapter 2 was the pivot point that changed everything. And so we're going to look at why. Why was this account of this paralytic guy so pivotal in the ministry of Jesus? What was it about it that caused the pivot to come? So let's look at the, first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to consider the scene of what was going on here. Then we're going to look at the story, just go through it, just the facts, ma'am. And then we're going to talk about the significance, about why was what happened so significant. Some of you got that. Thank you. First of all, the story. Uh, the, the paralytics, may, the paralytic, no, first of all, the scene. Thank you for your grace. They were, they were in a house in Capernaum, and the word got out that Jesus was there. So the crowds came and they crushed in on him so that people couldn't come and go. There, there were just lots and lots of people. Um, the scribes somehow got into the house and they were sitting in there. Now, a couple of things. Let's talk about real quickly. Who were these people? Well, they were people just like us. They were people that were there for all different reasons and for all different motives. Some of them were just curious to know, is this just another, you know, magician or is this something else? Some of them were, you know, busy bodies. They wanted to be on the end and know what was going on. And some of them were desperate. They needed help. And they thought maybe, just maybe, this guy is a real deal. So they were just people. So then the other players in this story are the scribes. The scribes are sitting in the room with Jesus. Who are these guys? You know, it's easy for us now, because we know the story, we know the whole Bible, is to look at them and say, oh, those scribes, those are the bad guys. Those guys, they were brood of vipers. They were Pharisees. They were awful. And they, they, were, they were disgusting. And yet when you look at who they were at the time, these are the guys that were the experts in the law. They had given their lives to study the word of God, 
many of them had it memorized, and they felt a weight of responsibility to teach it and to know it and to protect the people. And that's where they were at. Unfortunately, they were human and they were wrong. But they were sitting in there, and when they heard Jesus speak, their sense of responsibility and their knowledge of the law caused them to, to detect a serious threat to their way of life and that Jesus was somebody that was different. And he was speaking to them in verse 2. Now, the story is just, just what we've talked about. All these people are around. One of this little group of people had this friend that was paralyzed. He couldn't walk. And they were convinced that if they could get him in proximity to Jesus, Jesus can do what he had been doing and he could heal their friend and he would be restored. They had no Mayo Clinic to go to. They had no hope for this guy. And they thought, just maybe we could get him there. There was no way to get there because the crowds were so you know, dense with people. You couldn't get through. So they went across the rooftops. They busted a hole in the roof, and they lowered the guy down. Now, those are friends, right, that did that for him. So Jesus is in here, and he's doing the teaching, and all of a sudden, dirt starts falling down. And all of a sudden, here's this guy just hanging from the ceiling. And Jesus looked at him had compassion on him and said, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say get up and walk at first. He said, your sins are forgiven. That concerned the, the scribes that were there. And then through the course of it, he said, get up and walk and go. So that's the story. We know that story. We know that the guy was healed and was able to walk. So why is that healing any different or more significant than all of the other healings that Jesus had been doing? What is significant? What is different about this? For that, we have to think about the words that Jesus used and think about who the scribes were. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, these guys that have all of this memorized immediately are thinking back to the law and say, the Shema says there is only one God, our Lord, and he is one. And only God can forgive sins. This man is blaspheming God. The law says so. He, he can't forgive sins. And so immediately their antennas went up as they heard him. And they're thinking, who is this guy that he thinks he can talk like this? And so they're on edge, and they're, they're concerned about it. And I think it's interesting then that, that Jesus said, so that you may know, so that you may know that the Son of God has authority. And you, you, I don't know, have any of you seen the movie The Ten, Commandment, Ten Commandments with Charles Heston? You know, it, it reminded me of that. I don't know why. But so that you may know, we're going back to, to Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues, and God saying in uh, Exodus chapter 9, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. These scribes, when they heard Jesus say to them, 
so that you may know that the Son of God has authority to do this. They're hearing that and they're saying, not only is this guy saying he can forgive sins, he's saying he's God. He's using the language of Moses so that you may know. And the Son of Man is a significant term. And for that, we're going to jump over to, and I don't want you to, I want you to listen. We're going to go over to Daniel, and we're going to talk about vision language. Daniel's having these visions, and he's explaining to them. And what I want you to do is listen as I quickly read this and imagine the vision that Daniel is trying to describe. This is in Daniel chapter 7. As I kept watching, and this, this is Daniel as he has seen these, these terrible visions of four beasts, and he described them in detail, how powerful and awful and, and just crazy they were. Daniel was shaken to his core. And then he said, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and his hair of his head was like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. You could see that scene. That's majesty. That is incredible. The vision that he was talking about. And then we jump down to verse 13, and he said, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my head were terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked to clarify this so that they let me know the interpretation. These huge beasts, the four number of the four kings, uh, will rise from the earth, but the holy, of hol the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever. I, I didn't read that well. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. That is the Holy One of God. That is what is going to happen. And when Jesus says that he is the Son of Man, Jesus is inserting himself into this scene. At this point, the scribes are losing their mind. Because he has gone right to the heart of who God is, and he is saying that I have this authority. All of a sudden, they weren't amused at what he had been doing. They weren't just curious if he was going to go off the rails and go away. All of a sudden, they realized, number one, he was speaking as one with authority, which means normally when the scribes taught, you know what everybody else did? They were quiet. When the scribes taught, everybody else asked them for help, asked them for clarification, asked them because they were the experts. And then Jesus showed up, and he spoke as one with authority. And he made claims of deity. And he knew as much, as we know now, more than what they did. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is a threat that has to be dealed, dealt with. That's why chapter 2 was such a pivotal time 
in the early ministry of Jesus that went from him being introduced to the scene to him being an adversary, an enemy, and ultimately having to be killed. He was claiming to be the Messiah. And this was the foundation for the accusation that would be made against him in the Sanhedrin that would lead to his crucifixion. And so as you look at our passage today and you look at, at what's going on, it's critically important for us to understand that what he was doing here was calculated. What he was doing here, he knew what the response would be. And, you know, when I read through this the first time, I read through it again with my lens of 2022 thinking. And I wanted to think, oh, Jesus is using these phrases to trigger the scribes. He's messing with them. That's what I thought. He's just messing with them. He's trying to get them and that's to really trivialize the significance of what was going on here in the ministry of Jesus. It's easy for us to now look back at the scribes and think of them as awful. What would people 2,000 years ago think about, uh, or in the future, think about us? Because what we learned is that the, the Pharisees were, or were exposed by Jesus as being whitewashed sepulchers, that they, they cared more about the outside and the appearance of what they knew and all those things. They, they didn't have the heart of God. And that's a check for me. Why do I want to be involved in this church plant? Why do I want to preach? Why do I want to do the things that I do? Is it because I want people to think highly of me or is it because I want to have the heart of God? And so I look at each one of these players in this story. And I think there have been times that I've been all of these things. There have been times when I've been the curious crowd. Wondering what's going on. And what, what's, what, what, what is this all about? There have been times when, you know what, I didn't like what God was doing. And I wanted to reject what God was doing because I didn't like it. Like the scribes. But thankfully, because of God's mercy and, and his grace, he opened my eyes to my need of a savior so that I could be one who enjoyed faith the gift of God, to bring me into relationship with him. And I'm so thankful for that. It's, it's humbling as you read this to know I could have been any one of these other people, but because of God's mercy, he saved me. And I'm so thankful for that. It helps us to not be so judgmental of these people. You know, the Pharisees, especially the scribes, they were people like you and me a long time ago and in a very different life circumstance. They were all trying to figure it out. They were all trying to do what they thought was the right thing to do. And God included this in his word so that we could learn from it, you know? It's easy for us to get 
on our high horse because we have the whole word of God. These people didn't have that. They didn't have the book of Mark as, as they were sitting in this room watching what was going on. They were in a very different situation. And so this morning as we sit here and we look at the story, we think, wow, these, these guys were pathetic. Why, why would they be like this? And I hope the thing that we take away is that all of the things that we have today are by the grace of God, and we, we should be thankful. Now, this morning we're going to, uh, as, as we will every week, we're going to do communion. And as we partake of the communion table this morning, what we want to do is think about the time that we were like these different people. Has there been a time when I, I was confused and curious? Was there a time that I rejected God? Has there been a time? Now, this is important. Has there been a time that God opened your eyes and you realized that you were lost in your sin and that you were doomed without hope? Has there been a time that God allowed you to understand that and accept his forgiveness and that you could be in a relationship with him? And as we're going to come to the communion table, I want us just to meditate on those things uh, before we do that. I'm going to pray in a minute. And when, I, when I'm done praying, what I want you to do is come forward and you can get the elements off the table and go back to your seat and take some time to reflect on these things uh, before Parker comes and leads us in communion. Uh, let's pray. Lord, I do uh, just stand in amazement of your word, your goodness, your mercy, your patience, your love with people. Uh, because we are ultimately frustrating, and yet you love us, and we're, we're, we're without ability to be lovable, but you are a good God. And Lord, as we look at this scene um, here in chapter 2, and we realize that um, you were purposefully uh, showing them that you were the Messiah that had been prophesied, that you were God, and that you knew, even in that moment, that it was going to cost you your life, that your human life would be sacrificed on the cross. And yet, in obedience to God, you did it anyway. And for that, we are so thankful. Uh, thankful, Lord, for uh, the book of Mark that we could study this morning. And I pray that you, through your spirit, uh, would just uh, move in our hearts and know us and, and just... Uh, mold us to be more like you because we were here this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel.